Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is solving the port problem with my friend Lauren Began. How's it going, Lauren? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me, Joe. This is great to be on. Yeah, Lauren and I were blabbing away. We we feel like we already did a podcast, but we were talking about every. We solved all the world's problems. All the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lauren, please introduce yourself and your company. Sure, sure. So I'm Lauren Began. I'm um, the principal and founder of Squall Strategies. We are a boutique maritime um, consulting and legal solutions firm. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're available to help the industry. I have a passion for the industry. I've always been, you know, driven toward maritime industry in general, and, and I've had some pretty unique experiences. So I, I thought what a great way to, of really diving in and helping the industry. Now, I didn't check this out. So you're going to have to help me. What is a squall. I know I've heard a squall, but I don't know what a squall is. Well, so you might recall the movie White Squall. You know, that that was a, a movie of the 90s. It's it's a lesser known movie. I'm surprised by how many people actually haven't seen it. Uh-uh. No, there, there were some pretty big names in it. But but we're, so We're not all in maritime. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you know, this was pre-maritime for me, but it was uh you know, it's just such a such a great movie. But regardless, so a squall. So so as you can imagine, in the movie, the squall happens at one point, and it's it's kind of this mythical, magical, well, also real. But a white squall is the mis- mythical piece of it. Wall of rain, and and you're in the middle of a storm, and you're just getting hit by rain coming sideways, winds. You know, just kind of like a. We've all felt like that wind. Well, I'm from Michigan, so yeah, that's just. <laughs> you mean like March? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. Imagine being out on the water and having. <laughs> you know, March hits you in, in a wall form. So, you know, that that's what I figured, you know, I can help you weather your squall. And, and you know, I thought, you know, tumultuous times are when people are going to be reaching out for a little assistance and, and whether it's consulting for, for kind of business strategy or consulting for legal, you know, I want to be there to help you in the middle of your squall. So that's what it is. Squall strategies, strategies to help you weather the squall. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, I wanted a nod to maritime, but not so abrasive and not so obvious. No, I like it. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) So before we get into the topic today, which is solving the poor problem with my favorite maritime expert, (laughs) please tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Squall Strategies. Sure. So I'm a fellow Michigander. You know, we we were talking at length about that. You know, proud people coming from Michigan are proud Michiganders. Although technically, I don't know if you knew, but technically it's Michiganian. I was just had this conversation. (laughs) There was a debate whether it's Michiganians or Michiganders. I, I... think they decided it's Michiganders. You don't think so. We looked it up. So when I was at the FMC, you know, I was in the general counsel's office, the Federal Maritime Commission, and we were just kind of all inquisitive minds. And so get a bunch of lawyers together and they're going to be researching everything. And um, we looked it up at one point. And so it, it technically is Michiganians. And I think it was Lincoln who said Michiganders as kind of like an insult saying like you, you're just kind of floundering. It's, it's cause he was Illinois, you know, so the Michigander. Oh, I just, see how he mm-hmm, is. Right. <laughs> so that, so, but like, you know, as we're, we're, a, we're a, we're a proud kind of hardy people, you know, we weather those winter storms. Well, we, we took that name. We're like, yeah, actually I like that better. Michigander. Let's, let's keep with it. So a All little right. trivia for you. <laughs> So, but you grew up way in the north. You grew up in Traverse City, right? That's right. So, you know, I, you can't see the video, but I got my hand out. So up in the pinky, Traverse City. So it's it's a it's a wonderful town. It's right on the water. It's, um, you know, kind of the metropolis of the north, if you will, but still pretty rural on, on kind of American standards. But yeah, so I went to, I'm from Traverse City um, and grew up on the water, you know, sailing on, on the, on, you know, the bays and, and Lake Michigan. Going to the wineries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going to the wineries. Yep, yep. Well, yeah, I've I've seen that whole area boom. Oh my gosh, plug for the wineries of Michigan. They are delicious. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I grew up on the water, just was always kind of drawn to the water. I think anybody in Michigan that's anywhere near the water just kind of has it in their blood anyway. So fresh water, you know, so so unsalted as we say. <laughs> no salt, no sharks. That's what we yep. have here in Michigan. <laughs> exactly. So um but so I started working on a on a party catamaran and you know, as a summertime job and really kind of found 
found a, a, a passion for it. And so while I was working on that part of catamaran, I ended up getting my 50 ton captain's license um, from my experience on that on that vessel. Wait, a 50 ton, like how long is that boat? I mean, so so that, so it's it's more kind of like the weight of the vessel. So the, the boat that I was, it was a 20, 30 foot, no, 40, 42 foot catamaran was what it was. But I That's mean, a, big. A, a 50 ton vessel is probably any, any of your like, private vessels short of the millionaire vessels. So, you know, you can basically captain anything that's less than a a major crew (laughs) associated. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of big boats up in Traverse City now. And and it also, I mean, for people who aren't from the area, there's a ton of Chicago people end up there and, of course, a ton of Detroit people. So it's four hours from Detroit, four and a half, and then what is it, probably five or six from Chicagoland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with Traverse City becomes – a very exclusive place for being rural. It's funny because you drive around and you're like, oh, this is kind of podunk over here. Oh my God, look at these houses. (laughs) And you're like, and then like, Oh, look at this quaint little party store. Oh, my God, look at these restaurants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and it's funny, too, because the highway ends, and then it's another 30 minutes before you get to Traverse City. So, you right. know, we got, my husband and I got married in Traverse City, so all of his Rhode Island, New England family came out, and they're like, you're in the middle of nowhere. But then once you get to the actual town, you're like, this is pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the nicer area here in Michigan, uh, or in Detroit area, is Oakland County. It's the wealthiest county. And a lot of times they call Traverse City the northernmost Oakland County cities. It's four hours away. But anyway, it's a wonderful area. So did your parents grow up there or did they move from somewhere? Yeah, they're actually from Indiana. So, you know, that's why I'm a, a big Notre Dame fan. Go Irish. Yeah, you know, me too. Yep, Midwest Catholic. You, you kind of have to be. So, um, you know, grew up watching Rudy. You know, my, 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 both my parents' families were from the South Bend area, you know, New Carlisle, Elkhart. So kind of grew up, they grew up down there. They moved up north to Traverse City. You know, that's where they put their roots. But we were we were still pretty involved with the cousins that were down there, cousins in Chicagoland too. Yeah, so, so you know, it was kind of got a, a, a bigger swath of, of the Midwest, but still kind of that northern Midwest sector, I guess. Right. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. So you grew up there. You love the water. Then uh, where'd you head off to school? So I went down to Hope College. So Hope College is in Western Michigan. It's um, in Holland, Michigan. So um, they have the largest area of tulips outside of the Netherlands right. proper. It's it's kind of the biggest settlement of, you know, Netherlands expats. <laughs> and that's right uh, on Lake Michigan too, right? It is. Yep. Yep. Right on Lake Michigan. So I joined the um, the sailing team when I was there. They had a, a club sport. So I joined the sailing team, um, you know, really kind of found a, a, obviously there wasn't a way to kind of focus on, on maritime at that point. Point, but really found my way into international political science and, and, you know, kind of doing that route, international studies, double major. So that's that might be the hardest school to get in in Michigan right now. It might be. Yeah. Well, they're about to go They're They're working on an initiative where they're going to make it free for everybody to go. So they're, they have deep, deep pockets and big donors. And, and, you know, it's a really great, just a great school. It was when I went there, it was one of the top 10 schools that will change your life. It had been named on this list, wherever this list originated from, but top 10 schools that'll, na- that'll change your life. And it really, it, it focused on kind of this, this budding 20 year old, you know, older teen, 20 year old college student, but it really kind of created this depth of character. So I, right. I really enjoyed my time at Hope. Yeah, it's it's crazy how Holland, Michigan, mm-hmm. first off, is it's not so much anymore, but it used to be like little Holland, like everyone was blonde there. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. yep. mm-hmm. and, and it is a wonderful community. It's on the water and or close to the water. And then that school, it's really hard to get into. And I think uh, you have people from all over the world going there, which is weird for a small Western Michigan college. But I always tell people there are a ton of world-class universities, colleges, more colleges in Western Michigan that you've never heard of. Like Kalamazoo College is fantastic, Hope, Albion, Alma. My daughter went to Aquinas. These are small schools, but they are world-class. And a lot of people will say, if you're going to become a doctor, you should go to those schools for your undergrad and then get into the big university for like a doctor of law. Yeah, no, yeah, they they had, a, you know, when I actually first went to Hope, I was planning on going to be a doctor. So um, they had a really great 85% acceptance rate in the med school at the time. So I was like, oh, that sounds pretty good, you know, still kind of figuring it out. And then when I got, I was there for a year before I switched over into political science and was like, actually, I think, I think this is kind of cool and took a couple languages. You know, I was, I was a class shy of both a 
uh, minor in both French and German. So just really kind of like absorbing globalism and, and international and how we're all connected. And I thought maritime was such a great way to kind of, you know, that, that inherently is international. So I I was just, I wanted to communicate with people. I wanted to be connected with people. I wanted to understand the world. Now you were also student body president there, right? I was. Yep. I was. Yep. So, so, you know, our, our big thing was when uh, my vice president and I ran, we, there was no mascot at Hope College, but, but our, our rival Calvin College at the time had this you know, it was a mascot, but we were like, we can do it better. You know, we, 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 we can do it better. We even had a mascot up at Traverse City Central, Central High School when we were growing up. And so we were like, well, why do we not have a mascot? Everybody's got a mascot. So we, we created a mascot. That was what our campaign what, well, was. What is it? So it's, it's a Dutchman. It's a flying Dutchman is, is the mascot. So, yep. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yep. So, so he's got wooden shoes, you know, he's got the whole look, but you know, it was, it was funny because when we ran, we actually rented a squirrel costume and, and walked around campus. <laughs> In the squirrel costume, you know, with with vote for Lauren and Brad. Brad was my vice president at the time, and you know that that was what we did. So we we worked with a. It was actually a Canadian company for for creating these mascots, and then we got hooked into this whole mascot. There's a whole community, a whole world, <laughs> and you create. You know, we we mimicked it after Sparty, which is the number one most recognizable mascot. That's Michigan for Michigan State's, State. Yeah, Michigan State's mascot. So we write. We kind of mimicked our program after that, where it was kind of a secret society. Nobody knew who was actually inside the mascot, which then allowed the, the, the user of the mascot to come to life. And so it was really fun. You know, we, we had some fun with that. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So then you went to law school, right? I did. Yep. So, you know, I, I went down to Chicago. They had a law school forum. I was really kind of finding my passion in maritime at the time. I had just gotten my captain's license and I had a friend who was on the team who said, you know, I'm kind of interested in this maritime law. And I was like, never even heard it. Like what? Maritime law. So I went down to, to Chicago and, and they had Tulane there. And so I was chatting with Tulane and they were like, yeah, no, we have admiralty law. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily want to go admiralty. And they go, you know, there's this newer law school. It's in Rhode Island. It's called Roger Williams University. They let you kind of craft your, your law experience to what you want. And I was like, I think I'd rather go more business, maybe more, you know, kind of maybe government related, something that's a little bit more international in, in perspective. And Admiralty felt kind of domestic to me at the time. So sure enough, all of a sudden my, my target was, was, was shot and Roger Williams was where I was dead set on going. So I found my way out to the East Coast that way. Ah, nice. So then what was the, give us some sense of your career path then. Yeah. So Roger Williams um, School of Law, they have a joint degree program. So, um, you know, the law school was only maybe 15, 20 years old at the time. So I, I joined there. They had a law of the sea kind of focus. So I, I kind of trudge that path. You got to go all through, throughout all your law classes, but really kind of found my way into all these maritime classes. I was taking anything I could find, but they have a joint degree program for a master's of marine affairs with the University of Rhode Island. So in basically th- three years is a normal law school experience. And then in a basically three and a half to four years, you could get your master's of marine affairs and be done with all of it. So that's what I did. So I was half you know, my third year, I was half over at law school finishing up where everybody's kind of bemoaning, starting to study for the bar exam. But I was also in my in my kind of middle experience over at the University of Rhode Island doing this Master of Marine Affairs, playing with sand and learning about plate tectonics and salinity. Oh, and wow. Yeah, it was, you know, kind of filling out the rest of the experience so that it wasn't just all this you know, theoretical law discussion, you you could actually apply it into like some basic marine sciences, which is something, you know, lawyers always kind of joke that they don't have much science or, or math skills. But the, this kind of rounded that out. So I felt like it made me a, a, a more full, you know, a, a better prepared attorney when right. I, when I hit the market. So, so I was, so I was so, so focused on Arctic law, you know, coming from, from the Midwest and coming from Michigan, I was just, you know, drawn to snow anyways. And so I thought, well, if I, if I stay in the market of kind of, you know, this cold weather, then wouldn't that be great if I could, I could maybe find my way up there. So I found my way down to DC and worked for the state department. It was a contract position, but I was working on the extended continental shelf project. So at the time oh, wow. they were mapping the Arctic. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was able to go up to a Alaska, when I was still finishing up my master's, there was a, a conference up there. And oh my gosh, it was so fun. So cool being up in Alaska and, and just, you know, elbow to elbow with some of the biggest experts in the field of, of law of the sea, really, which is kind of the ocean's 
it's a it's a kind of the oceans convention um oceans constitution if you will but yeah so so worked at the state department for for a little while and and just had a great time but it was a contract position and really wanted to find kind of a direct federal job so a position opened up over at the federal maritime commission it was an internationally kind of leaning position attorney advisor in the general counsel's office so was fortunate to to get that spot and was there for for quite a few years and just really had a great job, great, great time working there. You know, it was, it's a, so the Federal Maritime Commission is an independent regulatory agency. They really kind of regulate the, the ocean shipping aspect of things. So really the, the, you know, we're going to get into this later, but the congestion and, and all of the offshore shipping. This is their problem. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is, this is them. You know, they, they haven't been, they're, they're a very, they're a small agency. They have kind of a small slice of the pie, but it is so crucial that unfortunately they don't get as much kind of press coverage as they probably should for this. That, that might be a good thing, given how yeah, maybe politics it is. Maybe, yeah, <laughs> maybe it is. But yeah, so so worked there for for a while and really had a great time. But you know, my my husband was was always up in New England, and we we had just gotten married, and we thought, well, let's let's live in the same area, you know. <laughs> so um, that might work. <laughs> makes makes more sense, you know. I've I've heard that marriages are are better when you're in the same area, but you know, I've also heard the opposite. So <laughs> no, so so I so you know, it was either he was going to come down or I was going to go up, and and he's got family in Rhode Island, and we wanted to be close to family. So I was fortunate to get a job at, at Massport at the Port of Boston. And, you know, for me, it really was a great way of rounding out my experience. So I had found this helicopter level experience of international negotiations. I was on our U.S. delegation for our international maritime bilaterals and trilaterals and multi whatever negotiations. But then I was also able to go to the port and put my boots on the docks and see, you know, the user experience of all of these kind of regulations that I had previously been a part of. And so, you know, what, what a great combo. Not, I really don't know many people that have done both and, and seen both. So, you know, when I, I thought I've always wanted to be a consultant and I've always wanted to kind of help the industry and, and I really kind of wanted to connect a little bit more to the, my, my DC world. So I thought, let's, let's do it. Let's jump. And I think a lot of people during the COVID, you know, kind of the great reshuffle, they call it. So I, I was part of the great reshuffle. And and you know was was thinking. so you started during COVID. I did. I did. I started during COVID. I, I you and know you had a baby during. COVID I had too. a baby. I actually started the company was out when I was about eight months pregnant. So no bo- no moss grows here. Right. <laughs> I, you know I'm I'm a, I'm a hard worker. If 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 that doesn't prove it, <laughs> right, right, yeah, the business is like having a, a third baby. Well, you already have a, another yep. one. So yep, I have an older. <laughs> so Squall Strategy is your third baby. My third baby. Yep, yep. It's only one month. Uh, no, well, it's. it's it, you know, it'd be the second one. It's a month older than my youngest. <laughs> All right, there we go. So, so what what problem were you hoping to solve in the market when you started Squall Strategy, and who do you serve? Yeah, so you know, I mean, I, so I have this unique specialized experience. So you know, I've like I said, I've I've seen the helicopter perspective. I've been on the regulatory side. I've been on the user side, and I, I saw a disconnect between you know some of the conversations happening between the regulatory side and the user side. And so, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I can help demystify some of the regulatory things that are happening because they're, they're, you know, a lot of people kind of see the federal government as this, you know, it's, it's this beacon on the hill. It's this big shining thing that you, you, it's untouchable. And so, you know, that's where I come in and I can kind of help demystify it, really make it a little bit more accessible. I can, I can digest and explain. And that's my whole thing is I really, you know, I'm a, I'm an attorney, but I really think it's important for everybody to be able to speak the same language. So I really want to help kind of speak in normal people terms, speak in regular speak, you know, some of the federal regulations. That is so important. I think that's so important in our business because the nature of it is there's so many, we're kind of siloed, you know, there's Mm -hmm. warehousing people, there's logistics people, there's the transportation people, whether it's boats or trains or trucks and then there's the import export people and we're also each one of those functions is wildly important but we have our own little language and our own little culture and but we're expected to kind of work seamlessly together sometimes and i think that's increasingly important so speaking in the speaking that common (laughs) language without too much jargon without it's you know i said before i haven't said it lately but the game changer in logistics and supply chain is communication. And if you're speaking jargon, if you're speaking uppity language, no one gets it. Exactly. So, you know, I, I came in as kind of, you know, like I said, the FMC has this very, very important role in the industry, but it's less understood. It's it's kind of a, a 
you know, it's, it's less, um, doesn't get as much publicity as per- perhaps the Department of Transportation Maritime Administration, which really doesn't have the same regulatory effect. You know, they, they do, but they're a little bit more brown water. They're a little bit more domestic. They're U.S. flag fleet promotion, whereas the FMC is going to be, you know, the, the regulator and the, they're kind of anti-competitive, watching the anti, the anti-competitive movements and making sure that the benefit is for the U.S. importer, exporter, and consumer. And kind of, the, you know, I don't want to call them a watchdog because they really aren't that, over, they are, I mean, they are, you know, it, it's using it as a lighter term. They, they make sure that monopolistic behavior doesn't happen. And so we saw that with the alliance reshuffles happening maybe about 10 years ago. They were very involved in that process, making sure that none of the alliance shufflings got really more than 25, 30, 35% of the market, because that's when you start to kind of hit that, that sliding down the scale. So, so what kind of companies do you typically work with? Yeah. So, so NVOCCs, you know, um, doing a kind of FMC compliance reviews, um, you know, and FM, FMC is Federal Maritime, Maritime Commission. Maritime Commission, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Shipping Act is what is what they um, they regulate. So really, you know, the the shipping documents all have to kind of follow some administrative type check marks. You know, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and that's something that I kind of had experience with and familiarity with. So you know, I can I can help like I said before, demystify that area and and really kind of lean in on the regulations, but also, you know, working with just any, any company in the freight industry. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm learning more about the surface side, but I know the ocean side. And so, you know, as, as you're working with some of When you say surface side, you mean domestic transportation, right? Yeah. Surface. Yeah. 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 Truckers, rail, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of, but like we said, it was so everybody in the industry is so siloed. And so, you know, as we saw with this congestion, you need to experience and learn and really absorb the other areas that are connected to the supply chain and that there's a disconnect there. So, so I've kind of dedicated myself, you know, to really learn that side more because I'm a full expert on the ocean side and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a, pretty good expert as it's coming in in shore, on the shores but but that's where you know like I'm I'm heavily relying on others in the industry who are, are trucking experts and you know, I don't purport to be that yet but I'm I'm getting there <laughs> so but but so you know so anybody really in the freight industry you know BCOs shippers generally what's a BCO beneficial cargo owners so so the people that actually own the goods that are being shipped you know you you can if you have questions on on the process or relationships or or surcharges you know I mean that's a big thing is the FMC is starting to really look at surcharges and making sure that they are reasonable, that they make sense, you know. So so you might be familiar with tariffs and schedules as part of the, the shipping process. And so that those are regulated by the Federal Maritime Commission for the most part. And so making sure that all of those make sense. Right now they're diving into right. detention and demurrage. That's an area that I, I know oh, very yeah. well, you know, and it's, <laughs> and it's a big area. So, you know, if, if you have questions about, you know, demurrage being improperly applied, you know, I've, I've been speaking a lot on, on LinkedIn and through YouTube. I put out, um, you know, little videos, captains, the, the captain's log with squall strategies. So, you know, I, and I talk about these different areas of, especially demurrage and, and, you know, kind of the different ways that it should be applied, the different ways that it should have some, some dispute resolution if you're having a problem. So for those who aren't in that, what is demurrage? Sorry. So demurrage, detention and demurrage. So basically demurrage is if a, if a cargo gets taken off of the vessel and it's sitting on the yard of a, of a port or a terminal and it, you get, you get a certain number of days, five, seven days to get your goods off the yard because the yard is supposed to be transitory. It's not supposed to be a warehouse. And so, you know, the, the whole structure is you get five days, we get it. You're not going to be there as soon as the vessel's there. The, the cargo might not be ready yet, but you get five or seven days of free time. After that point for about maybe five or seven more days, maybe even two days, you'll get a small charge, basically like a little rent charge because like a little nudge to say, all right, get your stuff. You know, your stuff is here. We told you, you've had a week, get your stuff. And then after that, it starts exponentially increasing. And so usually it's just a two step. So you get the one step of maybe it's 50 extra bucks a day, 75 extra bucks a day. And then usually the next step is pretty high. So 150, 200 bucks a day. So, I mean, now if you're at 15 days, you've had one week of free time, you've had maybe another you know, three or four or five days, but you're starting to to hit where your your every day is. And that's the, you hear a lot about detention. So what is so that's demurrage? What is detention? I think most of us know that one. Yeah. So detention is the box. So you know the actual cargo box that it sits in. Same principle, but it's for the actual box itself. And so whoever owns that box, you're using their equipment that they otherwise could fill. 
so that the detentions on the on the cargo box itself cargo the, box mm-hmm. right and so that a private company owns that for the demurrage when you who do you pay that to is that to the port yeah so so the port is the one who's assessing it sometimes and and most times i think it's actually picked up by the carrier so the ocean carrier so that's usually who the relationship between the the shipper the the cargo owner so they're ch- charging it to the ship the the ship and the ship's eventually going to charge the shipper right 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 so and and so that's what the FMC has been looking into is there might be a disconnect between you know when when it goes from the port to the the, the vessel the the carrier the ocean carrier down to the the end user the the cargo owner is that a direct pass through or is there administrative fee that's been added or oh, or right. backwards you know if there's if there's are um, people a, taking advantage right i mean that's what they're looking at and i think most in the industry would would say that they've they've seen they've actually they've heard of that and i think we all kind of saw that with the uh, with LA Long Beach when they started talking about the dwell charges and all of a sudden all the carriers were like well we're going to pass it through and it was like well wait, wait a second <laughs> We're switching gears here. So today's topic, again, is solving the port problem with my friend Lauren Began. So I know this has probably been covered many times, and I think we hear it on the nightly news. But let's cover, just real quick, what's caused this port congestion that most of us think of as of L.A. and Long Beach. And by the way, those are two separate ports, right? So Correct. how far how far away are they from each other? I mean, they're they're not far. I mean, you know, I we even say it now. I mean, LA Long Beach, you almost say it as one one unit, but they they are in an agreement with each other that's filed with the FMC. So, like I said, the FMC is kind of this competition house. So, when when competing forces agree and and create agreements, who owns those ports? For the most part, ports are, are quasi government or or government related. So, those in in those instances, I believe they're city owned. So, you know, they're, they're but they are competing. They are different cities. Long Beach and and LA are different cities, obviously. So that they're different owners and different harbor commissioners. So if I worked at the port, I would work actually for the city of LA or the city of yes. Long Beach? Yes. Yeah. For the most part. And that, and that's true for most ports, you know, across the United States. So for, there are some private ports, but for the most part, they are public ports, quasi-public, I should say. <laughs> so I want to cover just four big areas of that, that I think most of us have heard. So we won't go through in too much detail, but so I think during COVID, we hit this, this time of greater demand. We couldn't travel right? We might not be able to go out to restaurants. We might not be able to buy a car because of the chip shortage, but we could spend money online and we went crazy. We couldn't help ourselves. We had nothing else to do. People bought. So we had greater demand. We had greater demand on our supply chains. And that came at just the exact wrong time for a lot of broken supply chains. So number one is more demand. Second is we had across the world these very I won't say delicate, but very interconnected supply chains. And when you have maybe something in China that COVID hits there, maybe hits their port, as they get better, we get sick. So we had broken supply chains. Then and I want you to speak to this next one. So there's also just the nature of the ports. That's where all we have, they're inefficient. So talk a little bit about, and by the way, I'm not ripping on them. This is just the nature of the beast. So talk about why they have some inefficiencies there. Yeah, I mean, the industry in general is a very paper-based industry. And so, you know, you're limited, you know, so so I kind of, the imagery that I go back to is think about when we first all were going for emails, you know, I mean, like previously we were what, sending it, we were made, I don't even know if we were faxing it, I guess, but we were mostly sending right. it like through snail mail, you know, and, and so email came along and it was like, I think we were talking about this the other day, like, you're going to send an email. Well, well, who, who do I send it to? I'm just, you know, I'm just going to walk down the hall and go see them. Well, no, it's, it's better. It's faster. It's immediate. And you're like, well, I don't know. I'm immediate. So now we understand the benefit of immediacy, but we're still sitting in this, in this paper-based industry. Right. But I think one of the reasons this is paper-based and, you know, every time I talk to technologists, I spoke to the Uber guys yesterday or published yesterday. Great guys. But one of the things that was, I thought was interesting is, and I always say this, it's harder to digitize and connect everything digitally when you're talking about the port because they're talking about different countries coming together, mm-hmm. different companies. Then you have the government piece and we have different cultures, different. So saying I'm going to connect with my a shipper who's in the U.S. and a carrier in the U.S., it's a lot easier to digitize that than to digitize the ports. The nature of the beast is just doesn't make it easy. Well, and you also have, you know, when when you're dealing with the goods moving, you have the chain the chain of command. You know, you you have you have to basically be able to tell, you know, where where the goods were and and 
if, you know, if, if you digitize it, then you start to think, well, what if it's manipulated? You know, what if, right. what if it's, you know, that chain of possession might, might be manipulated. And so there, there's some real big insurance ramifications, you know, just general shipping principles that happen with. So, the, so the paper makes it kind of fail proof, you know, so to speak. But that's where, you know, we really as an industry needed blockchain technology, which is showing kind of that metadata or, or, you know, and to say it another way, basically all of that chain of command, all of that like chain of custody, I should say. And, and it shows it and it commemorates it in like a permanent way so that you can look back and, you know, I, I'm not a programmer, but you can look back at all that kind of right garble jarble stuff and and see you know okay chain of command here's where it went and and here's where it went next and you know somebody did this but it didn't edit the the full document and so we needed blockchain to be there we also need like a single pane of glass where i can say i can look at my entire supply mm-hmm. chain and i can look at what's actually happening at the port so so getting back to it we had this greater demand that coincided with people being sick around the world, broken supply chains. All it takes is one chain in the supply chain and we're in trouble. So we have this inefficiency at the port, which again, it's kind of almost the nature of the beast. It's not like, not like we have dummies over there. They know what they're doing. It's just, we got a lot of cultures, different languages, a whole bunch of different companies and the government involved. It's not easy just to go, yeah, just put some tech there. You'll be all set. Right. So the next problem, and I think we all saw this, we're still seeing this, is labor problems, is... The government gave out money, and I think the, with the idea that I don't want anyone going hungry, which, by the way, that was not the problem at my house. I gained weight during COVID, <laughs> yeah, right. the COVID-19 or 20 in my mm-hmm. case. But mm-hmm. also, some people might have had their kids not go to school because of COVID, maybe a teacher shortage or, or some other outbreak. So we had people getting money. They stayed home with their kids. Maybe they had a loved one who was hurt, not hurt, sick. So we have labor problems even now. Almost, you know, we're going on 18 months here with COVID and the labor problems have caused a lot of the problems at the port because we don't have the truck drivers. We don't have the dock workers. I think the ports probably have their own problems. We've had labor shortages that cause some of this port congestion. Well, and, and you know, to, to kind of speak to that. So, you know, as many of the chains in the supply chain are, it's it's hands on, you know, it's people have to be it's not, there. It's not remote. <laughs> no, it's it's essential workers, you know. So like so, you know, it was like we're saying it was kind of a perfect storm starting to happen that, you know, people being close to other people was the problem. But you're not going to get your PPE. You're not going to get your goods off the ships. You know, you're not like unless right. we make them in house, you know, in America, you're not going to get them into the country unless you have those people at the docks receiving all those goods and being able to transition them out. And one thing that actually happened that was totally terrible was that maritime workers weren't included in the first few rounds of essential worker lists. So, you know, healthcare workers, 100% were essential workers, but they can't get their PPE if maritime workers aren't included in being essential workers. So what the, what the maritime workers were doing is they were essentially platooning. They were turning into team A, B, and C. And so A would work, you know, Monday for half the day and B would come in. So that way, if a team went down, you weren't dead in the water as a port because as we see, you can't shut down a port without big ramifications. Oh boy, that's that's true. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about these four problems again, and then I want you to talk about the a looming problem we have. So, we had greater demand, number one problem. We all went crazy buying stuff online, and number two, we had broken supply chains that caused problems that ca- now cause port congestion, inefficiencies. You know, this is a paper-based system, and, and I know we're all moving towards digitization, but it's not quite there yet. I almost said that right. <laughs> and number four, we have labor problems kind of across the board everywhere. And then we have another labor issue that's that's looming. So speak to that. Sure. So, so you know, this is kind of the next thing that's going to be layered on top of an already already burning flame. This is a pile of, of gasoline ready for it. And, and, you know, that might be an over-dramatization. We'll see. But, but the, um, the, the ILWU, the labor union of the dock workers is their contract is about to be up for renewal. So it originally was actually up for renewal in 2019, you know, prior to, to us really knowing that COVID was coming, coming down the line. And so they actually extended their contract at the time for three more years. You know, they, they wanted to kind of avoid cargo disruptions at the time was, was part of the discussion and, and the reasoning in exchange for some some modifications of their wages and their pensions but so they 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 delayed it so now here we are the the contracts are due it's 3 years later they they've pushed off all of their reasons to negotiate this three years and now they're being kind of asked again to to potentially push back and recent news articles are saying 
you know, the, the labor unions, you know, they, they don't want to. They've already pushed back three years. And so now we're kind of stuck with this, you know, this spring or, or this next year, 2022, is when labor discussions will happen. There's kind of no more pause buttons. You know, they, we didn't know a pandemic was coming, but, you know, at some point you can't just keep pushing it back. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to dive into. But no matter what, there's a lot of tension right now in the industry, as we know. And that's kind of the worst time to negotiate. I would also say if you're in that job and uh, you're under probably enormous pressure right now. And so, and I got to be thinking there's guys working a lot of, well, I don't know how what overtime they work. It seems as if that doesn't necessarily solve all the problems for them. Work more hours, but that ILW. They already what, are working a lot of hours. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, they're, they're working a ton of hours. So what is the ILWU? So it's, it's the, it's the labor union on the West coast. But what's it's it stand for? International Longshore Workers Union, I believe. Okay. And, and the ILA is the East coast equivalent. So International Longshoremen Association, I believe. Yeah, when we when we were talking the other day, I I, I googled ILWU, and it popped up that the average worker there makes one hundred seventy one k in two thousand nineteen. The average, I was like, damn. That, and I think they're probably looking for raises. Um, I was like, good for you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, and to be honest, you know, a lot of that, like, you know, that's a pretty high salary. That's more than I made at the port. But but you know, a lot of that is double, triple overtime. You know, if a vessel comes in, and and excuse me, I should correct myself. It's the International Longshore and Warehouse Union is the ILWU. Okay. But so so a lot of that is that they are working double, triple time because when a vessel comes in, you're working that you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen hour shift. I mean, you know. Let's just get the ship done. So. God bless him. It, yeah. It probably doesn't go as far in Long Beach or LA as it does uh, over here in the <laughs> I was mighty say, Midwest. There's, there's snow in a lot of the ports. There, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've I've been told that Long Beach has beautiful weather all year round. So, right. but <laughs> I was going to say the dollar doesn't go as far over there. <laughs> so anyway, we have that looming problem. And again, I I, I got to think that everybody wants to get make a deal, get this thing done because we've seen problems. But anyway, we've talked about the problems, and again. These are the problems that we need to solve. And and when I was talking to you the other day, I said, well, yeah, it'd be nice if somebody would get, address these. And then you said, well, somebody is addressing these. So, <laughs> so talk a little bit about what's going on and what the Federal Maritime Commission, FMC, is doing to solve some of this. Oh, yeah. and I also talk about the difference between that and the DOT, Department of Transportation. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, the, the Federal Maritime Commission is the independent regulatory authority for kind of the maritime shipping world. And I should say, you know, you know, not everybody, like, government doesn't always solve the problems. I think we all kind of oh, really? in society, right? That like, you know, I'm here, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, kind of using them as this, like, they're going to save the day. You know, I, I'm sure I can almost hear it from your listeners right now, like groaning, like, yeah, right here. Okay. Right. Here comes the government. They're going to help. But, but, you know, I, I believe that they have a, a role and an important role and, and a limited role in what they are trying to achieve. So you have two different agencies here. So you have the federal Maritime Commission, which is who we've been talking about. They're the independent regulatory agency. They have five commissioners. You know, they're, they're kind of political, but they're, they don't shift with the, with the administrations as much. You know, the five um, politicals are for five-year terms. There's, there's usually a, a majority of one party versus the other. And the chairman does change. It's, it's kind of a reappointment with the new administration, but really the five stay for these five-year terms. And so they're a little insulated from the kind of ever shifting politics that happen. The nonsense. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so and and they've been there for a little bit longer and for the most part they are maritime people themselves, you know. They've they've been somehow in the industry whether it's on the on the So that's the FMC and they're so responsible the for the ocean. Now, yeah. Ocean, ocean-borne cargo. So anything that's kind of floating over the ocean. So the other side of it is the Department of Transportation, which we're all pretty familiar with. That's where Secretary Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, you know, is the secretary of all of Department of Transportation, which includes FAA, you know, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, all, like all, all different modes of, of transport. Within there, they also have the Maritime Administration, which is the maritime agency within DOT. So that is an administration agency. So, you know, is there overlap? Well, so so there there overlap with the FMC. You know, the, there is and there isn't. I I'd say there's more not. There's sister agencies. So, in the 1950s, you know, they were the same thing, the Federal Maritime Board. And so 1961 they actually split apart and became two separate agencies. MARAD, the the DOT one, MARAD was the promotion of the US flag fleet and kind of the the provide money into the industry to kind of help pr- promote and bolster the the industry. Whereas the Federal Maritime Commission was a little bit more regulatory, a little bit more kind of 
like I said, watchdog, but I don't want to say that necessarily, but a little bit more kind of monitoring of, of the ocean transportation for the benefit of the U.S. side. So you said when we were prepping that the FMC came in and took kind of a leadership role and said, let us help facilitate. Let's get the, everybody in the same room. And that would be L.A., Long Beach. I'm assuming other ports are involved. Yep, yep, yeah. There's quite a few. Mm-hmm. So the ports involved get the shippers involved, get all the players. And I think this is, you know, again, I'm 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 all for limited government, but I think this is a role where the government actually makes a lot of sense to come in, take a leadership role, facilitate a solution, get this collaboration going. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about what's happened so far and where you think this is heading. I know like there's some good things that could come from this eventually. Yeah, so so Commissioner Dye actually really kind of started this initiative. So Commissioner of the FMC, Commissioner Rebecca Dye, started supply chain innovation teams maybe about 10 years ago where they started just bringing in industry people and they brought them in in kind of a neutral place and the, the Federal Maritime Commission ended up being the facilitator of the discussion. They, they, they basically provided the room, they provided the structure of the meeting, but they, they said, this is your meeting. We want you to start solving some of these problems because we were starting to see congestion in 2015, you know, start to come around. And even before then, you know, we were, we were seeing chassis problems. We were seeing, you know, some of these things start to bubble up. And so Commissioner Dye started these supply chain innovation teams. And so from there, she's, she's looked at a few different initiatives. She looked at Demurrage and that was kind of pre, COVID, you know, pre, pre congestion as we know it now, she was really diving into demurrage and really the, the industry was pretty excited about some of the different things that they were diving into. They still actually have an audit team that's reviewing demurrage. So they, they're still working on that in the background. That's, but, but the FMC isn't going to be reactionary. They're going to be purposefully inserting themselves where they're needed. They, they don't want to be, you know, when, when congestion first hit, it was like, can't somebody do something? They were, but they were kind of building their foundation to address the problem. And so what they ended up doing was they created national shipper advisory committees. And so they have two right now. They have a importers list and they have an exporters group. And so... You say that one more time. National National shipper. shipper advisory committee, and that's public and private. Yeah, so so it's it's mostly private companies that are that have been asked to be on this team, and so you know from from like the importer side, you're going to have Target, you're going to have Office Depot, Home Depot, have, yeah, those big, yeah, wine, big big shippers, right? Yeah, but but also you know the Tractor Supply, Mohawk Global Logistics, you know it, the, Amazon actually has a rep, but then on the exporter side, you're going to have you know CHS, you're going to have American Commodity Company, you're going to have Dupont Cargill. Ocean spray, the cranberries, you know, that's from my neck of the woods around right. here. But so, but you know, so, so they form together and they start having these meetings. They've had one meeting. They're going to actually have another meeting, um, early December and, and they just start to address the problems. And then they're going to start finding solutions to the problems and, you know, having the government be the facilitator. I don't think it's just one meeting. I'm assuming there's a lot of work happening in between, right? <laughs> well, I'm sure there is. Yeah. And, you know, at, the, at that kind of intro meeting. So so these are these are um, federal advisory committees. So they, they do have kind of a public facing. So the public can listen in. I mean, you have to ask for the Zoom link, but you can listen into it. But yeah, so, so you know, the, the Federal Maritime Commission is really the facilitator. And so they're not trying to step in and say, Tell us what to do, how to regulate this. They're saying, you guys, we're providing the meeting space. You guys decide what to do. You, in this neutral location, you know, so that competitors don't have to like fall on their swords. Competitors can just come to this meeting in a neutral way and just talk generally. It would be very difficult for like even the biggest, let's just say a DHL or a FedEx or UPS or, or any of the big shipping companies. It'd be very difficult for them to go to their competition and say, let's get together and solve this problem because there is a governmental aspect to this, the Mm -hmm. FMC. There's ports. Those are, again, owned by cities. And so you do need the government to take that leadership position. And I think potentially, and again, I'm not uh, close to it like you are, but I think the government can also potentially provide money maybe headcount. Obviously, you can get everybody in the same room. I think, I don't know this is happening, but I suspect relax regulatory compliance stuff that's that's what we want from them <laughs> yeah if that's identified as a, as a as a barrier to entry or as as kind of like a, a roadblock to a, a more successful supply chain I'm sure the FMC will look at that and, and hopefully remove it. I mean, that's for the most part. I mean, Congress sets some of the statutes. And so the FMC then builds their regulations off of what statutes are, are handed from Congress. However, you know, if there's something that's in the way, the Federal Maritime Commission is all about right. the efficient and expedient movement of goods. And so 
if this, if these groups identify something that's regulatory that's in their way, or likewise, if they find bad actors and they can identify that as kind of a collective group, the FMC can go after the bad actor, you know, and that's why they wanted these groups that are cross market, you know, they're really kind of showing different areas within the industry from the importers and the exporters perspective. There, there's been talk about even creating an MTO terminal port group as well. What is MTO? Maritime terminal operators. So essentially ports, you know, so so ports, terminals or, or marine terminal operators. Right. And, and again, to just differentiate, I heard some people complaining, you know, again, more political talk about Department of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg was on paternity leave and they're like and he's supposed to be solving this supply chain problem but which by the way also we talked a little bit about this and this is nothing against mayor pete but he doesn't have any experience in transportation i'm sure he's got a wonderful staff underneath him but let's face it he was put in that role as a way to bolster his political experience right and I so mean, he's potentially yeah. <laughs> i mean you know so he didn't we, get we that know. job because he earned it he got that job because you're going to run someday. Right? You know, I, I I don't know Mary Pete. You know, we know South Bend. So, like, we're starting to kind of piece together. Like, we know right. South Bend. South Bend isn't really on the water. So, but but DOT is more than just the water. So, you know. But he's but, mostly he, over the, over, he's domestic transportation mostly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, you know, so, and, and like I said, aviation as well. So, you know, who knows? I, I don't know his whole background. Uh, you know, it maybe it doesn't. I, 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 it's hard to say, you know, it's, it's hard to say. You think he was a trucker at some point? Maybe he was. I don't know. Maybe he was. I mean, that's the thing. I don't want to come out because, you know, that, that would be then believing these political engines. That that would be believing these political engines that just destroy people. So, you know, I've never independently looked into his background to, to, but he seems like a nice guy. And, you know, I'm, I just had a baby too. So I can appreciate wanting to be with your family. But I guess my point to that is, He's, he's not, not really guy. responsible. He's not the guy. Yeah. His, his... He's more domestic transportation, which we do have the trucker shortage and we do have other issues. Hopefully he can get, and again, I'm sure because he is a political appointee, I'm sure there's an enormous staff. Wait, probably there way is. too, probably way too big now that I think about it. <laughs> way, way too big a staff that is working on the Department of Transportation stuff. But this again is FMC is really where we're struggling. Exactly. So DOT has, I mean, just, just to be fair there, DOT has some career people that are there that are yeah. apolitical that are wonderful. I mean, I, when I was working in DC, I was working with a lot of the team over there and, and, you know, there's DOT, but then there's these agencies and there's Mayorat. And so then you get even further away from the top, you know, kind of top political you get less political as you kind of go down into the vines of of the big tree right. there so but but like you said the FMC really should be more of the focus here and we've kind of talked about the structure of the FMC and so you know people can be shouting at at, at secretary P mayor P for for not being part of it but really by design it's the federal maritime commission that's supposed to be in the conversation there no i agree and i think what we we've kind of agreed on i think most people would agree is we want them to come in. This is a perfect role for the government to come in and, and take a leadership position, get all the players in the same room, drive some collaboration, really just be the facilitator. And not. And I think ultimately what we'd all want is some guardrails, right? Some not, not Don't tell me exactly, don't prescribe it, don't be prescriptive, but put some guardrails up. And, and I think, you know, you were saying that this is an awful time, obviously, for this congestion. Most of it, by the way, I always tell people it's a small, small part of the problem that's out on the ocean. Most of us aren't missing meals, uh, but don't order a couch. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but you talked about some of the things that you think are going to come from this that are going to be good, not only for Long Beach and L.A., but for all the ports. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, it, it takes pressure. It takes, you know, intense situations to create some big changes. And and like we said, this is a paper-based industry that needs a reason to switch over to digital. And now, you know, we're, we're, we saw during the pandemic at the beginning that we needed eyes on where the PPE was coming from and when it was going to hit the shores and when it was going to come in. And, you know, we couldn't just say, well, between 10 and 14 days, we needed, well, am I going to have enough to supply the hospital that is now using, you know, reusing their throwaway mass? So, you know, we saw that at the beginning and then now add congestion on top of that even more so if even if it adds 10% more you know efficiency to the industry which which it won't it's going to add i mean exponentially more, right? more efficiency i mean we saw like i said the example of email versus snail mail i mean you know it's it's updating we obviously use email in the maritime industry or in the supply chain but i mean 
PDF versus that metadata that, that, you know, kind of goes through portals. So, you know, previously there maybe wasn't a reason for tech to get too involved. There really weren't big margins on profits in, in supply chain. It was just kind of like a, a way to get your goods moving. And, you know, the whole reason why we were having alliances was because the profits were so low for these ocean carriers. Right. Now right. the profits on the ocean carriers are, are rivaling that of Apple tech companies. I mean, so, so now, you know, the, the profits aren't going to remain. But hopefully this pressure of the industry will force movement into a more efficient world. And, and that's really what I hope comes from all of this is, you know, that we're, we're at that moment where we need, we need some big movement. We need something to happen. And I hope the American ingenuity is what gets inserted into there. Some of these software companies, you know, this, these, these freight tech, you know, people that were previously business intelligence focused, but didn't know anything about maritime, you know, that, like I said at the beginning, we need to all speak the same language. And so making everything in the supply, making everything in the supply chain approachable so that somebody who's not in the industry doesn't come in and say, oh, shoot, 10 different languages. Like, how am I supposed to put this into digitization when you guys don't even know what each other's talking about? And that was another thing you you mentioned to me that there's some initiatives as part of this FMC project is this data standard data standards and transparency some that's sort of correct. initiative right yep that's correct so commissioner bensel so so commissioner die was the was on the national shipping advisory committees um kind of hosting those and and chairman maffei has been you know a, a big supporter of all of these committees and he really wants visibility and he wants to help fix the problem so chairman daniel maffei he's from um, upstate new york but so so commissioner bensel is now the commissioner that's looking at the data initiative and he's looking at kind of the need for data standards and transparency to really improve the supply chain efficiency so part of that is going to be you know there's no real good definition of what demurrage is i mean we described right, it but there's no right. like this is what it is and so without that clarity you're going to have the bad actors stretching what it should be you know because it's supposed to be capturing right. you know it's supposed to be capturing basically inefficiencies in the market but how far does that go? Right. And and again, I think we really do need some nice guardrails. We need some leadership. And again, I think this is a perfect place for the government to come in and help create the environment that we can all be successful. And, you know, you have to have trust in the marketplace. If for whatever reason, people say, oh, you can't order something from China or from India or wherever, we're not quite there yet, obviously. But if we ever get to that place where you don't trust the marketplace to do the right thing, then we lose everything. I mean, we, we we have laws, but more than anything, we kind of have trust in our institutions and we trust when I say, Lauren, I'm going to pay you to do this, that you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really great that the government is taking it again, not, not imposing a mm-hmm. solution, no mandates, just saying, guys, can we all get together and make something happen here? Well, that's it too. You know, so, so there's already laws on the books that, you know, like I said, people don't understand what the Federal Maritime Commission already has authority to do. And so by calling for, you know, either, either more authority given to the FMC, well, I mean, they have a lot right now. Like let's, let's try using what they have. Let's try giving them, you know, like, like the, the, the room to breathe and to start doing this. Like I said, they're not reactionary. They're purposeful in, in their movements. And so that's so key. And I feel like that makes them a more, you know, a more reliable federal agency because they are purposeful. They're making sure to include the conversation that's already happening outside. They just want to bring the conversation closer to them so they can hear it. They can listen in. And then when all those great ideas start bubbling up, there's a call to action. There's somebody who can actually put that into place. And that's the federal government in this role. You know, if, if there's something that happened with the supply chain innovation teams, they were talking about, well, we need a national freight portal. So that, that ended up being, you know, one of the recommendations from the supply chain innovation teams. And so the FMC said, okay, let's publish this paper that says we need a, dig- a, a national freight portal. But went short of saying we will host it because they didn't want it to get gummed up in the government system. So now it was kind of put out there into the industry. Somebody pick this up. Somebody be the national freight portal. And so the industry's kind of, you know, looking around, testing the market on, on this national freight portal. But now, like I said, we get the intensity of the congestion and, and, you know, this is, just the the tighter you 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 crunch the ball here, the more likely something needs to change. And so maybe somebody picks up this right. national freight portal. Maybe somebody starts digitizing the industry so that everything will move with more visibility. Yeah, and that most likely will be some sort of uh, 
association industry leaders that get together and say, let's all put in a little bit of money, maybe create a public or private mm-hmm. company that makes that freight portal that and and this is the way it's supposed to work. So yeah. anyway, let's wrap this bad boy up. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna give some highlights here and then I want to get your final thoughts. Sure. So so we we know we have a port problem. We have a port congestion that's happening not only in a long Long Beach in LA, but I think other ports are now suffering a little bit too. And this was caused by the greater demand. We all bought more during COVID because we couldn't go out to eat. We couldn't go on vacations. Couldn't buy that new car because there's chips in it. And supply chains became broken during COVID. No surprise there. I think we've lived through that. We have a paper-based system in our ports, and that's been a problem. And it's just the nature of the beast with all those different players, all those the government companies, international companies. Not easy. I think we're going to get address, address that. We have labor problems. Again, the government dumped a lot of money on the economy. Some people could work. They just said, hey, I'm not going to because the government gave me a check. But others have legitimate illness, maybe a family member, maybe a kid can't go to school. All sorts of reasons for the labor problem. Kind of looming is this labor negotiation coming up in, in spring. And so the solution that we saw was this this. FMC, Federal Maritime Commission, came in and said, We're not gonna we're not gonna tell you what to do. We're gonna get everyone in the same room. We're gonna we're gonna get you to guys to collaborate. They act as the facilitator, as the leader. Let's get some guardrails here. And what you think is happening is we're gonna kind of move towards hopefully some new standards, some things that make this a much more efficient market over there in the and not only LA and Long Beach, but hopefully everywhere. So it's just gonna improve our ability to trade with our partners in the, around the world. Yeah, I think so. I think efficiency in, you know, efficiency in the industry and, and innovation in efficiency is is what's going to come of this. It's got to, you know, I mean, I think we're we're all as we're all taking a, a more honest look at the at the supply chain, it's we're all kind of appalled at how how, you know, maybe outdated <laughs> it all is. <laughs> yeah, and for good reason. Again, this is this always people always say this on my podcast. Our business was underserved by technology. It was just so much easier to put technology into offices and and in a in your factory than it is to put it across the supply chain that spreads across the whole world. And this was a transport business. You know, this was just the movement of stuff. And so why you know why why overcomplicate it? Because right. it was just moving stuff and it worked, you know? And so now we were already on a path of exponential growth with e-commerce. And so, you know, that the ports were investing in their infrastructure. You know, they were trying to you're never gonna have you're never gonna have a a, a a bad reason to invest in a port because, you know, demand is only going to keep increasing. So we were already on this exponential increase in demand across the market. We just weren't prepared for the spike. You know, I mean, at, and at the same time we were seeing the spike was also when we were, you know, kind of limiting our workers in the industry because the nature of the pandemic. And so that was a perfect storm of, of what was happening. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking us through this. But before you go, tell us a little bit about what's going on over at Squall Strategies. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, Squall Strategies is, if anybody wants to continue the conversation of any of the things that we've talked about here, I'm happy to do so. You know, Squall Strategies is a great way to to kind of increase your, your knowledge of the industry, you know, check any of the conversations that we had against your own business portfolios. You know, if there's anything that you think and more knowledge will help you make better decisions, more informed decisions. You know, I I can help you navigate where I expect the business to go. I mean, you know, where I expect the industry to go, you know, so that federal regulatory analysis, whether it's the FMC or just generally, you know, I mean, the the U.S. trade representative, we all, when the China trade tariffs were coming around, you know, that, that ended up being a big piece of what was happening with global trade. And so something that I understand very well. So section 301, you know, kind of maneuvering within. Oh was, yeah. 301. <laughs> I know, I know <laughs> yeah. But, but it was, it was, you had to kind of move quickly because, you know, the federal government doesn't really always think about how the industry wants to communicate with the federal government, but there's this little bit of like intimidation because, Oh man, it's the federal government. And so having somebody that can help, like I said earlier, demystify the process, make it so it's less intimidating, make it so that, oh, shoot, I'll just call USTR. I mean, you know, I'll just see what's going on. I mean, I, I, I certainly, you know, in, in no way am saying that I, I'm, I'm no, I'm not lobbying for anybody, but I can help demystify. I can help explain the process. You know, federal maritime related issues is obviously something that I feel passionate about, but really anything that's in global trade, I can, I can be of service. Um, you know, advice and consultation on, regulatory impacts of your business, general maritime consulting, advice and consultation on demurrage, cargo movement and shipping insight, 
foreign trade and tariff, like I said, and, and really emerging markets and even offshore wind. You know, I'm I'm up here in New England, so it's it's part of the conversation. So, you know, as as I can help in in any area that's going to be maritime related, I'm I'm happy to. And really, you know, there's a lot of conversations out there, but making sure that you and your company understand the conversation so that you can enter it as well. Because I think, you know, if, if you don't understand the the lingo of the other side, or if you don't understand the regulatory structure of the whole industry, you're going to get left behind. And so, you know, reaching out and, and kind of, what was that? Let's talk about that a little bit more. I'm I'm happy to, you know, whether that's applying it directly to your business or just helping you understand a little bit more about the different areas out there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, so when they hit that squall, they know who to call squall strategies. Let's help weather that squall to be corny about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is, this is such a big topic. And again, I really appreciate you kind of, you really educated me because again, I, I think there's a lot of us who are just kind of saying, well, who's fixing this? Like what's going on? And you know, the nature of something that is so complex like this, it doesn't lend itself to simple solution. Like, well, we just got more truckers. Well, okay. Maybe more truckers is a part of the problem, but who knows what the problem that when it's this complex is. And so I do think you're right. We're going to see great growth from this. This is going to make us more competitive. It's going to make the industry better. It's going to take some friction out of it and streamline a little bit to use a little bit of jargon. And uh, that's what we need. Well, and that's it too. I mean, you know, so many people want to be part of the conversation. And so that's where I want to help those people join the conversation. You know, I mean, like the, the, the different federal agencies put out notice and comment periods. They really want oh, people yeah. to respond, you know. and So when ELD was going down, and you know, most people are going, oh, God, I hate ELD. But... They did ask for feedback. I'm mm-hmm. not so sure they listened to it all, but they did what they thought was right, and there was feedback. I worked when they updated the Food Safety Modernization Act because that impacts a lot of truckers and supply chain. The FDA really went out of their way to get feedback. And also, I think one of the things that they also did is they said, you have to do this, but they didn't say how you had to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to say step one, step two, step three. They wanted to say this is a standard that we all need to meet on cleaning out trucks. They didn't tell you how to clean out your trucks, which in a way I wish they were a little more prescriptive there. But it's, it's, I think the way the government's trying to work with industry is saying, we're not, we don't want to tell you how to do your job. We're just telling you, let's, can we work together to raise a standard or two? Right, right. Well, and that's it too. I mean, you know, you can only, like when they call for these comment periods, they really want to know what's going on out there. And right. so, you know, I, I see the government as kind of these supply chain, you know, the, the shipper advisory committees as being another way of getting that information because the comments really are, are not well kind of participated. And that's your opportunity to participate with the government. They're asking, they're they asking for asking, your feedback. <laughs> they are asking. And like, you don't need to present them with this like pretty poly. I mean, you know, you want it to be well written and put together, but it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to go make it this wonderful thing. I mean, and that's where I want to come in. I want to help you craft your ideas. I want to help you, you know, learn to communicate better with the federal government and and really kind of take away the intimidation of it all because it's supposed to be a conversation. It's not supposed to be, you know, two independent ideas. It's supposed to be joining together. And so, you know, the demurrage issue is going to be coming up. They're going to be sending that for comment period. At some point, the FMC has said that at the end of summer, I think they said sometime this fall or winter, they'd be putting that out for comments. They want to receive comments. They want to know what's going on. For a long time, nobody was really talking that the carriers were passing through, you know, demerged charges. And and maybe it was a different charge than what the carrier was even getting assessed. That's something the FMC wants to know more about. Yeah, I think there is an opportunity. I think most of the time the government is working effectively with the citizens. You know, what's funny, we're all kind of biased. We hear the blather on the TV and you go, I hate Washington. I hate this going on. But that is more political. I think most of the stuff that happens is non-political. It's regulators and uh, advisors within the government working with business people. And I think to your point, it's it, they're they're looking for that interaction. So, and that's, you know, sure there's, there's duds out there, you know, every industry has duds and, and, you know, to be fair, the government is, is kind of notorious for not moving very fast, but that's where, you know, I keep saying this is an independent regulatory agency. It gives them nimbleness that, that, and it's a pretty small agency, you know, so it gives them, it's only just over a hundred people, you know, short of 150 in individuals that are working there and they have economists, they on staff, they have attorneys on staff, they, 
you know, they, they kind of have the experts there ready to help the industry. And so they're able to be nimble because, like we said, it's insulated from the politics. It's insulated from from the baloney that goes on. And so, you know, let, let's let's use them a little bit more for what their intended purpose and they're, yes. they're willing and able and they want to. So, you know, they're just people that work for the government. You know, let, let's engage them in these conversations and bring our grievances as an industry up to a willing participant who wants to hear them. Excellent. Excellent. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to educate me and hopefully some of my audience. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was really fun. And like I said, if anybody wants to continue the conversation, Squall Strategies, www.squallstrategies.com. That's S-Q-U-A-L-L, Squall. I'll put a link. I'll put a link to your website and to your LinkedIn profile in the show Perfect. notes. Perfect. So you well, can reach you out to much. Lauren there. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn. <laughs>